Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I take you for a ride on the devil's ship. I take you for a ride where you sink or swim. Now come with me and let this story begin. Bruce, we made it. We made it. I can't believe it. It's been, uh, I don't know, two years in the making. Yeah, it's been, been, been a pandemic, and you know, it looks like you're operating in a first-class operation here. I'm lucky that you came now. If you came last year, you have been, what are you doing in the ghetto? But now at least. Uh, no, it's all good. Well, first of all, this spot's fantastic and easy to get to, other than uh, the closing the little bridge over the 40. But but thank you for the, the heads up on how to get here uh, in the fastest way possible. It's part of living in this city. I got, I got a, I, I'm surprised I never asked you. How the hell did you get started in comedy? Was it because uh, I've had people that have come on that have been agents or managers, and I get talking about their love of comedy that initially they were just captivated and like I have to be part of this. What was it for you? How did you walk into it? Well, you know, there are two things. First off, I wanted to be in. I wasn't necessarily a comedy fanatic. I was a comedy fan, and I loved Kinnison, and I, you know, I loved uh, you know certain comics that you know we'd sit around and listen to. Um, you know, um, but I just wanted to be in the business. I wanted to be in the entertainment business and, you know, probably more rock and roll at the time. You know, I had, you know, you know, hit up Donald K. Donald and try to get a gig there and did my best to get some, op- you know, opportunity. But the first real show business opportunity I was offered was to drive one summer at Just for Laughs to be the driver of the artist and industry. That was 1986. Was this to pick them up from the airport or to bring them from venue to venue? Everything. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think there was, it was, the festival was pretty small at that time. It was French and English, but I just did the English artist. And I'd pick people at the airport and I would, you know, take them to venues, drop them off at the hotel, restaurants, et cetera. But what was great about that experience was that you had quality time with people. You know, someone, some people wanted to be left alone. A lot of others did not. They wanted to know where to eat. You know, they want to know a little bit about the festival and you were their f- entry point to the festival. So they, they would ask you a lot of questions. Um, and, uh, and if you were smart, you know, it was a really great way to build your Rolodex. I didn't expect that or know that, but it just became that. And, you know, one of the first people I ever picked up was um, the gentleman's name. Ugh, I'm going to forget his name, but he was the producer of Letterman. Okay. So, you know, and, you know, he would come and update me on what he thought of the restaurants I recommended. We became, you know, friendly. And, you know, all of a sudden, when I went to New York for the first time after, you know, working at the festival, I I, I, I called him because that was the day we could only call people. I think I left a, I got blown off by his assistant. And the minute, uh, 15 minutes later, you know, wherever I was staying, he rings. And he goes, why didn't you give me notice? You want to come today? You know, so all of a sudden I realized, you know, this is, the perfect job to get into the business. Um, you know, uh, uh, the other person I drove, you know, obviously, uh, not a, didn't become a friend of him, of his, but Jerry Lewis. Uh, one of my first gigs was driving him, his manager, his wife's, sorry, his manager's wife and his dog. 
his dog too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and Jerry was an interesting character. wasn't the most friendly man, you know. Uh, but it gave me a real insight to you know that sort of celebrity from that era. That same year, I was driving Sandra Bernhardt, and they had done the King of Comedy together, which was Sandra's breakout movie. It was the Scorsese directed movie. Uh, with De Niro, yeah, yeah, and um, they had had a horrible experience together, and Sandra thought he was an awful human being, <laughs> and everyone connected to Jerry said that Sandra was an awful human being, and they would both hit me up with Sandra, go, how's that piece of shit today, you know, and, <laughs> and then Jerry's manager's wife would go, so how was Sandra treating you? Is she being disrespectful? Oh, this you is know, amazing! Uh, I love yeah, how so that I works. Got, I got caught in the middle, so I, I had to play it carefully. I never sold e- either of them out. But uh, but um, I, I, if I had to support anyone, I would have supported Sandra because uh, I witnesses Jerry's uh, ways at times, and I, I'm sure he went after her. And again, he, you know, he was famous for saying women aren't funny and all these other yeah, yeah. horrible things um, that obviously uh, I disagreed with him on. And um, so that was a very interesting experience. And then little by little, as I, I got to see comedy from this vantage point, you know, uh, fell in love with the, the art form. Again, in the late 80s, it was the beginning of a new era of comedy. When I entered, it was a nightclub business. You know, two people could sell out an arena, not 200 probably today. A handful of people were theater acts, but it's largely a nightclub business. At that point, there were no sitcom stars. You know, at that present moment, there were none. You know, it was before Cosby. It was right before the boom? It was right. Oh, it it was right at the two, three years out. Okay. Um, so uh, we were first. Um, we were the third year of the festival. The first two years were uh, Franco, Francophone, French only. And then by year three, 1986, um, there was uh, actually 85 was the first year in English. I didn't work that year. Uh, second year in English, uh, I, I started to work at JFL. And in 1988, so three years later, largely, I think, because I was just the one of the only guys that spoke English, uh, Andy Nolman, who had given me my opportunity at the festival, said, uh, do you want to be a director of programming? You seem to have a good eye for comedy, and you know, you're know you sort of first in line. Um, so he said, do you want to go scouting across America? Because Andy got bored with it very quickly. He didn't like being in these hotels, and he found it a bit boring. And I did it for a couple of decades. You know? So 1988, the first trip I got on a plane and, and flew to Boston, which was the hotbed, one of the hotbeds in the world of comedy at that point. I saw Dennis Leary smoking cigarettes with no material. The first year I got in there, two years later, he was, you know, killing. And, you know, a couple of years later than that, he was a superstar. Uh, Boston so you got was, to see that whole little oh, evolution yeah, of a lot absolutely. of comics. Absolutely. Dennis was always charming, and he had a bits and pieces of material. But it was clear that if he could get the material, he would, uh, you know, he would be something to, um, you know, he, would, he, he could become a star. But what was interesting about that era in Boston was that um, it basically was white boys from Boston, tough, and they did not like people coming into their territory. (laughs) They didn't like acts coming into the market. They were all making a fortune. And then when the boom came, you know, there was, you know, the club that was big downtown would have three suburb clubs that were 500 seats and they would do eight shows a week. Everyone, Boston, the top level Boston comics were making money, more money than most touring acts. And they didn't like if you came to their party. And they were pretty rough with the other comics if they did. Um, So I found that very interesting. Um, It was pretty one dimensional, you know, uh, point of view. It's the Boston point of view 
male point of view. And then little by little, you'd see a couple people pop up like Wendy Lehman. Um, and, you know, actually, one of the first people I ever saw after that first showcase was Panette when he was on the way up. Um, you know, but that was a, a fascinating time to witness um, uh, stand up in Boston. There was a documentary that um, covered the subject. I think it, when stand up stood out or something like that. It was we we did the premiere at the the festival um, and brought all the Boston guys in for that. Um, but you should if you can find it. I think if you Googled Boston stand up scene when stand up stood out, I think that's the title. There's it's, a whole documentary it, about it. Oh yeah, it's fascinating. You know, it it it, it centers on Stephen Wright, who had done the festival uh, a number of times. Uh, by I think '87 was his first appearance. You know, this was a time where you go on the Tonight Show, and you have a set. Um, a killer set and you can go from club act to theater act in one television appearance which obviously does not happen anymore i mean no. there's lots of ways to become a arena act that didn't exist then but there was no tv show there is no tv show today that quite honestly has any impact but let alone that level of impact so steven went from boston guy to you know major star wow yeah one appearance you know johnny carson asked him over to the couch and that was it game on so you, this was crazy to me is that you literally started, you're the, the classic story. You started from the bottom of an industry. You started from driving people around right now, by the way, I gotta, I gotta say something about you. You're, it surprises me that you're not a dick. <laughs> well, when I play ball hockey, I think I, but what I hear is oh, that, that, that's different though. I allow that. That's because uh, right, well, I, I myself you. am a piece of garbage, but you, it's so weird that normally you hear stories of people, they get to a certain position and they become assholes. You, the, and you know, this people have probably told you the same thing. It's very weird that. Everyone, well, I mean, there's a reason why everyone likes you, but you could you could be an asshole to everyone, and you never are. You've been super nice to me for years. You've been nice to people around me. When I hear stories about you, it's like, oh, yeah, Bruce is a good guy, which is crazy because anyone else in your oh, position. Well, that, that, that's very nice, but I don't think there's any excuse, first of all, to be I think it has a, to do with the fact that you asshole. started from the bottom. You just met everyone. You saw the hard work that's in it because you don't act the way I would assume you would. Knowing you the past couple of years, it's... I don't know. It's it's very surprising in a good way. I like yeah, it. Well, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the least I can do to contribute to the world, not make it any more complicated. You know. And then what? Do, okay, so so you're doing this now. You're getting to see all these different acts. You see people evolve. You're falling. I'm assuming more and more in love with comedy. Yep. When do you start saying, "All right, I got to start bringing guys that I really, really like that need to be showcased, need to be seen"? Well, look, I I think that you know to give uh, uh, people their due, you know, listen. You know, especially uh, even when I was out there scouting, Andy Nolman was the guy in charge, and it was really his vision at that point. You know, of course, there was Joel Barrows all in the background, but Andy led the English portion, and Andy had a vision, and Andy wanted to see us make noise and not be boring. And, you know, and, and at times that would be by booking controversial comedians. You know, it could be something silly like the Tokyo sh uh, Shock Boys, or I think that's what they were called. Did but, he ask know, for that? He said, go edgy? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. First of all, you know, let, let, we have to deliver for our TV broadcasters, and we had some big U.S. deals very quickly, uh, which I can speak to because they also changed the game for us. But, but Andy also wanted headlines for crazy things on stage. He wanted variety acts that did insane things. He wanted people to get upset. He wanted comedy to, to push some buttons and not be a boring event. Um, and that always impacted me you know we look through the lens now the same way you know we're a much more mature organization with you know bigger you know concerns at times um but there's always an eye to me to never lose sight 
of the controversy, you know, to, 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 to make sure there's a conversation going, that comics are challenge, challenging on stage, you know, to make sure we have an open canvas for people to be themselves, to express themselves, um, and, uh, you know, and to make sure we're not boring. Really, quite honestly, Andy hated boring, and that never left me. Um, so... That's a good direction to give you. Don't be yeah, boring. Give me yeah, something good. No, no, absolutely. You know, he would look and say, yeah, yeah, he's okay. He's in a suit. He's got the same old opinion that everyone else, you know, his wife or, you know, this or that. I said, he says, look, do we, you know, what do we call them? Suit comics in a suit. We only need three of those for the festival. Go find me people with something new to say, you know, something that will surprise people. And that led us to find some of the great voices and point of views in comedy and history. You know, from the Brits. I mean, we went all over the world. We were looking in Britain, Australia, all over America, Canada, of course. Canada's our our priority. Um, looking for those comics we know that people would stand in the back in a room. Of the, we wanted to find those comics that would blow people away and offer something different. That's why we, when we found Hicks, we said, oh, my God, we got a guy that's going to blow the room apart plus challenge people. Um, perfect. Who found Hicks? Uh, Andy saw Hicks at a, a Catch a Rising Star, if I'm not mistaken, in New York, if okay. I remember correctly. I forget how they connected, but that was absolutely a booking that Andy made in the late or early 90s, I think. It was the first time he came to the festival. He did the Nasty Show. He did a couple of other things. Um, and then we were producing a one-person show series. We did one one-person show, not the 50 we do today. Okay. We'd pick one, and we were very, very uh, very uh, rigid about the standards of what we wanted, and we wanted the artist to put on a production that wasn't just standing in front of a brick wall. We wanted to have a bit of a narrative, and we wanted a title that was cool. We wanted to find artists that weren't always pure stand-ups, and we started off largely with, with you know, uh, more theater one-person shows. Okay. Um, but... Um, after Hicks had killed at the festival, I was begged by his manager to stay in L.A. one extra day to go out to somewhere in the suburbs of L.A. Might even be halfway to San Diego. I forget where I was. But say he was headlining on a Monday night um, that I should go see. You know, would, it, would I stay one extra day and go see Hicks? Um, and, you know, I really didn't want to book, or Andy and I didn't want to book a stand-up for that spot. We were still looking to, because we had so much stand-up, why don't we find something a little different? But I loved Bill, uh, so I decided to go. Um, I think the guy's name was Jack Mondros or something like that was his manager's name. So he just sort of drove me crazy, slash, I had a feeling that I shouldn't miss this. I go off to see Bill in this suburban comedy club, not a full room, and halfway through his set, the the um, the uh, sound system breaks because uh, he was just and he goes ahead with his set without it and still kills and it was one of the best sixty minutes I'd ever seen in stand up and I called Andy and I said look it's not on many levels what we were looking for you know because but I said it's just the best thing I've seen I think we should book the best thing we've seen and not necessarily have to hit all these and he goes a hundred percent. Um, and he came to the festival, and that hour, 75 minutes, um, was captured by Channel 4, British broadcaster, and recently voted in the top 10 stand-up specials of all time in Rolling Stone. Um, and, uh, you know, right up there with Pryor, 
Um, that would have never Murphy. happened had you not stayed that day and then put your foot down. Yep. Um, and, you know, what happened with Bill, too, was that Bill um, was not fully grasped by American comedy fans. He wasn't a star um, because he'd have to go across the country and get into red states and have an, his point of view would be a disaster. He'd, you know, he, sometimes he'd, people would walk out, the entire room would walk out. And he wouldn't compromise. He would say, you know, basically fuck off if you don't want to listen to what I have to say. And there was really no compromise for Bill. He had a, an approach and he, he had to deliver that approach. That's who he was. He wasn't going to adjust his material for some audience in, you know, Kentucky. Um, and, you know, a lot of times he had a hard time selling tickets to the level that he should have. You know, he wasn't getting massive TV offers. So he goes off. This Channel 4 show airs. Channel 4 was sort of the hip network in England. There was a BBC, ITV and Channel 4, and Channel 4 was the younger network, and had the, and we were there, we were the longest standing stand-up series on, in British television on Channel 4 at the time, and, uh, and uh, Bill exploded. So Bill went from club act in North America to arena act in the UK, and then an arena act in Australia, no, excuse me, let's start again, not an arena act, a theater act. In the UK. In the UK. Um, and uh, same thing in Australia. And all of a sudden, Bill Hicks fans were showing up, which was such a pleasure for him. A similar thing that happened in Montreal. The room was filled with people that loved him. And he went, oh, my God, I'm not in a club where people are showing up for comedy, not for Bill. And it just was, you know, the biggest, you know, uh, boost for him because he could talk to like-minded people. People, and instead of having to fight off hecklers, they were, you know, uh, they were, you know, uh, on the cusp, they were standing and screaming and shouting and, and you know, and supporting his point of view, um, you know. Did he ever talk to you about how he felt you changed everything, how that one well, decision? You know I, 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 it's, we never really talked about. Because it's interesting it, when you could it, pinpoint something. really about you know, what I did, it, look, it's what, well, he it's what he did, did obviously, you know, yeah. what he did. And all he needed was a platform. And to be quite honest, you know, people say, you know, well, you know, you, you booked Hicks, you booked Chappelle early on. Anyone would have had half a clue and a bit of taste would have booked both. You say that. So, yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, and there's others that I could say, maybe I need a bit more credit for because I saw something at the bottom of it all, but they were clear cut. They were, I mean, it was obvious that Hicks was a monster and perfect for Montreal. And, you know, there's no question when you watch a VHS at 11 o'clock at night on a Tuesday of Dave Chappelle doing three separate sets in his teens from three shitty TV shows and three amazing different sets that were provocative or hilarious, were super intelligent. His point of his performance was superb. I just called the phone number on the VHS to a guy I didn't know and just said, I'm taking, I'm going to never book someone on the spot. It was so obvious. I was just so curious to understand who this kid was. He was just so, so incredible. I love these um, moments. The fact that you could pinpoint that moment of you watching the VHS and then calling. I, I always, that's why I like what you said about Hicks. I like when we could pinpoint a moment. Yeah. Cause I always see it in my head, like a movie. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, I'm yeah, thinking yeah, of you yeah, in the VHS. Yeah, like, okay. Who is this? It just, there should be a movie one day about this stuff. Well, I mean, I I, I did um, Barry Katz's podcast. Uh, he did mine. I had I like Barry. Yeah, it's absolutely. And we talked about that tape, you know. And I thought Barry was going to be this nerdy, sort of accountant-looking guy. And who shows up the first year at the festival? This goofball that's six foot four with long hair. He's a hey, character. Barry Katz is buddy. an actual character. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, you are not what I expected. Um, but anyway, um, 
Yeah. So, you know, luckily for us, um, and unfortunately for us with the case of Bill, we've had, you know, we would have hoped to have had a long, long history supporting Bill Hicks and, uh, and more maybe in time, just like it happens with Dave now, it's more Dave supports JFL, you know, maybe would have done the same with Bill that he'd come back selling out the Bell Center. I mean, I think, you know, if Bill had happened now-ish, he would be massive, you know. Look, Marin, perfect example, Mark Marin, you know, he showed up at our festival. He did a one-man show. It was one of the best one-man shows we ever did. He sold 50 tickets a show. He couldn't sell a ticket. But he was superb. Um, what happened is, through his podcast, obviously, yeah. spoke to a like-minded fan. There was always value to Mark, what Mark had to offer. It was just difficult for him to connect it to some consistent group of fans podcast did that yeah well, he put himself the, the each of those episodes especially the early ones was a lot of him more so than the interviews was just him coming out and you understanding him a hundred percent so you know think about hicks i mean even maybe hicks would have popped sooner than he did because uh you know there were would have been another outlet for him i i'm positive bill bill might not have just wanted to get massive maybe he just would love you know to be himself and live in a nice little uh you know, bubble of, uh, you know, selling out theaters comfortably and not doing any show he doesn't want to do, or he could have been massive. I don't think it would have been anything but great. I, I just think that uh, he would have just become a, a real major star worldwide. And did you ever uh, think of deviating? Did you ever, while you're doing this, because like I said, it was from the bottom and then growing into the company. Did you ever think, all right, at some point I'm going to reach my limit with this, maybe do something else out of comedy? A hundred percent. But but what was interesting about it is that every time I w thought about leaving, um, you know, it might have been an argument with someone about the direction or, you know, I want more money or, or something. Uh, um, something happened at JFL that, that showed me that I could do something different every year. I was given so much room to, you know, to build an event. If I wanted to, if I had a viable project, a festival to pitch in Abu Dhabi, no one stopped me. Someone said, if I said, hey, I want to make this type of TV show, I want to do this or whether to do that. If it made sense, it was on brand, I could do it. So just about every, every time I went into a new year, as much as things are challenging at times, um, there was always something new we were doing. If it was a scripted series I was producing, if it was a festival in Sydney, Australia, if it was a festival in Chicago, if it was really trying to jump into the theater business by doing off-Broadway, uh, you know, obviously in New York, if it was, um, you know, um, launching um, a new TV business, you know, getting online, I just thought, you know, well, why would I leave when I can and I've been offered the the variety of of you know, I, I've been offered so many opportunities. It's really upon myself to go out and get them. So was that always you that would think to maybe go on to a new platform in your no, medium? No, no, no. It was, it was the team. Um, okay. You know, it was myself from time to time. But, uh, you know, listen, it, uh, it was our past owner. It was Andy. It was my colleagues or people that work for me. You know, I, I had for a long time a guy by the name of, name of Robbie Praw, yeah. uh, who was uh, basically... He left as our, our VP of programming, but he, he started off in a, you know, running programming, director of programming. And, you know, he had a lot of influence um, on me because he was always wanting to shake it up and take shots and relaunch our Toronto Festival. He was the one with my other colleague, Christine Melker-Ross, that 
basically put the Chicago Festival together. Um, so, and now I have an awesome team. You know, our festivals are run by a woman by the name of Robin Kayser. She's got a great eye and, uh, you know, and they're telling me we shouldn't be doing this, we should be doing that. Like the only thing that, sorry, the most important part of my job now is not to get in the way, um, uh, but to help someone you know, not go the wrong direction. So I, I want, don't want to get in the way, but I also don't want to, you know, go down a path that's a bad idea for us or most importantly, a distracting path because we've got so much on our plate. The key is the balance of just getting out of the way, letting people do their jobs, not being overbearing because uh, that kills progress and that kills the work environment. I know what it's like to be overmanaged, micromanaged. It's not fun. It doesn't feel, you don't feel secure in your job because you feel that every minute you're being scrutinized. I'm not going to retain employees that way and definitely not going to grow. If I told Robbie Pra to not have pushed us in these certain directions, like he said, blow this show up, blow that show up, stop that show. He wanted to aggressively attack where we were weak. And uh, luckily for me, I, I, I saw the light that he was right. Most of the time he was right. Things that he thought sucked, sucked. So get rid of them. Show me a better way to go. And not everything he did was right. He made mistakes. As we all do. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. I, I, I like where I've met him a couple of times. Robbie Pro is oh, he's a complete yeah. jerk. No, no. Well, actually, you know what's funny? No, is, no, I'm, I'm teasing No, no, he's, he's a great one guy. Of my, uh, my, one of my very good friends, but we, uh, we talk every week and couldn't be prouder of him, but we do tease the absolute crap out of each other. Uh, he's doing great. He's over at Netflix, I, if he's still there. But I remember uh, we were doing a live podcast 2018, I think. Yeah, 2018 with Mike. And I was in the elevator and we were trying to keep Swartz in, uh, awake because I was tired. And uh, he could sense that I was stressed out. I was like, oh, fuck, man. What do we, you know, have to manage all these people. And then he just looked at me in the elevator and I was like, hey don't fuck this up. Like, but it was, you could tell like the way he said it and it just calmed me down. I started laughing. I was like, all right, I thought, yeah, you're right. I'm not, how am I going to fuck this up? Let's just go. And then the podcast was fun. It was a great time. But like in that moment, he could have just either been like, oh, you should stress. Or you, but he was like, hey, don't fuck this up. And he said such a funny way. And I was like, all right, he's, he's in the, on the, he's in on the gag. Swartz mm -hmm. is going to be fine. And then it turned out it was one of the best uh, episodes that we had done. Oh yeah, really? Yeah, it was fun because well, it was him, uh, Bob Kelly, me and Mike. Okay. And we okay. teased uh, Poseidon was on the sideline and everybody kept teasing him. It was just a good episode. That's very nice. Yeah. Oh, it's part of the- Did he spill the coffee? Part, yeah, it's him who spilled spill the coffee. Part of two drink minimum is bullying Poseidon. Okay. It's, All uh, right. it's All right. me All and right. Mike aggressively motivating him to do better. Okay. That's what it mostly is. Like now, it. moving forward. So you've, because you mentioned VHS tapes. It's interesting. You've seen a lot of different comedy eras go by. Yeah. We are, even without the pandemic, everything's moving digital. Plus the pandemic and you don't know when things are really going to go back to normal. Have you guys sat down and said, okay, we need a strategy to tackle this? Oh, absolutely. First of all, there's some new great people that came in with this new era, you know, the now, you know, owned by the folks at ICM in LA and Howie and uh, Bell and uh, the CH group. Um, you know, they've uh, really upped the, uh, the, you know, the seniority of the staff. We've got a great team. Uh, both on the JFL side and both overall corporately. So uh, there's there's a team attacking the, the online space where we're out everywhere to get the brand out there, to monetize, to bring exposure to comedians. So every day, uh, the gentleman that I now work for, Charles DeCary, is pushing us to, you know, to, to find better ways to build the event, to build the brand, to bring in money to pay the bills so we can continue to do the great things we want to do. Uh, yeah, so 
every day we wake up trying to find to be on top of anything that's out there that could be great for the brand. So it's going to be a lot of, I'm assuming, remote stuff this year, probably. Yeah. So what it will be this year, it will be a hybrid event. Um, we will do as many live shows in Montreal that we are allowed to. And we assume, and we built a plan based on up to 250 people. Um, so we will do a number of those shows. We also assume that we won't get Canadians and Americans living in America back because we, uh, we're not going to be able to pay someone enough money to quarantine for 14 days. Mm. So the economics of what we can offer them are not worth their trouble. So we will work with the great comics that uh, live in this nation and, and the ones that we've been making TV shows since the border has been closed. We've shot a series with John Doerr with comics. We shot a one you. with Rick Mercer. We just shot Roast Battle Canada uh, a little while ago. Um, and We need uh, more Dave Merhesh. We need more of him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we got a lot of them. And, uh, you know, we had, you know, so, um, so we'll focus on Canadian comics in Montreal up to 250 if it gets better, great. If it gets worse, we'll go more online. Yeah, uh, we're shooting shows in LA and New York to to go online. Uh, we're going to do new faces in LA and Montreal. That's that we'll exciting. Go online. The industry is buying passes in record numbers to to watch that. So we started scouting a week ago in Austin, Texas, and our scouts are going all over America and Canada to see those comics. Um, and um, we're going to put a first class group of new faces in front of the industry because um, we want to get back to as, as, as close to normal as we can. And that means we got to be online. That means we have to be adaptable. And that means that, um, you know, we will go where we can safely put an audience in front of comics. So you, cause you made me think of something when you brought up uh, the Montreal comics and the scene. So I'm going to ask you a question that people ask me and I don't know what to answer. Yeah. And now that I'm involved in the French scene, I do notice the difference just they kind of have a pathway on the French side of how they can become professional comedians. Whereas I always get the same question from English comics here. And sometimes I ask it myself, I don't, I don't even know how I made it this far. What would be their, just for laughs is here. People assume it's easier for acts over there. Just for laughs is their home. They have opportunities, but a lot of the Montreal acts always feel like they get shortchanged mm -hmm. and mostly because there's no direct way. We don't really have a film industry here in English for them to write. Whereas Toronto, there's other options. Is there anything that you're thinking of, let's say, just for laughs, like to open some doors for Montreal Comics? Or have you noticed that in your time that it's a bit, it seems a little harder for them, especially on the English side here? Well, look, I mean, first of all, it's hard to make a living for comics in Montreal in English because you don't have, you can't walk down the street and do an episode of Mr. D or, yeah. or, or whatever. So there's just a lot less things happening. Uh, luckily, you've got one very good comedy club that, from what I can sell, how books it well, yep. pays reasonably well, puts people in front of a, a good audience. Um, I'm sad that the comedy works, that um, it's still, still not around because that was a legendary room with lots of great history. Uh, but still, um, in terms of us doing more, I, I'm sure we could, you know, and, and I, I guess what I would say to... But what would it be? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think the first piece that we're always welcome to hear any advice on or any any uh, critical uh, feedback is, you know, I think it's 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 the communication piece because um, we're doing the best we can with what we believe could be helpful to comics and address an audience and address the industry to just put forward the best proposition possible. And of course, we want as many Montreal comics in there, um, and we showcase 
locally and we give people an opportunity to be seen. Um, maybe there are things we could do better. Maybe we're leaving some people uh, uh, feeling that they don't have a chance to be seen. So I would say more than ever, communicate with us. Tell us what we could do better. Tell us if you've got a great idea to expose Montreal comics, pitch uh, Zoe Rabinet, that has, who is extraordinarily uh, um, good at her job and conscientious of giving Canadians, let alone Montrealers, opportunities. Don't assume we're um, going to think of every great idea. Don't assume we're naturally restricting Montreal comics because we're not. I know you're a big Montreal guy. But, yeah, but at the same time, you know, communicate with us. You know, feel free to say, hey, I got a great idea or hey, I don't feel this is fair. You're only looking at people at this club and that club, and I don't work there, so I'm not being seen. Tell right. us. Communicate with us. Um, that's the I, only I never way thought about that. I like yeah, that, yeah. by the way. So just communicate, because, you know, you know, especially, you know, given the job that I had for years where I was trying to figure out, I, I worked on the Montreal show for years. That was created largely to give Montreal comics a chance to be seen in front of the industry and in front of com Montreal comedy fans uh, because comics felt they didn't, have the exposure. So that show was put in the rotation. Um, you know, what's the next great idea? You know, we'll think about it, but if someone has it, tell us. I like that. You know? Yeah, that's the one thing you never hear is tell us. It's always you hear, we're dealing with it. We're doing what we got to yeah, do. Yeah, but you know what? It, 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 it's also too. A lot of people get frustrated and pissed off and, and don't communicate. And we don't even know what they're upset over till we see a tweet saying, oh, this person's that or they're not doing this. Well, you know, first of all, you, if you want to put on social media, your call just tell us yeah or through email i think would be better right than yeah, yeah. <laughs> just bitching about it yeah but it's okay you know there's sometimes we see a tweet of something we go oh i never even thought about that shit we got to fix that you know who i can never get enough of david pride <laughs> i can't get enough of pride uh, david pride hey, i feel man. like you could put him on all the time he he's makes a, everyone happy he's a funny man so, so okay so we went through a couple of the years now um fuck you met and i i want to say discovered a lot of the greats that we respect and love now um, where were you 10 years ago? 10 years ago, were you thinking, all right, this is going to get bigger. We're going to go to Australia. We're going to expand. Or were you still in the phase of, all right, let's just see what we can do in Montreal, maybe Canada. Like when did the expansion idea start? Well, listen, uh, the expansion piece has been there forever, but I think we finally sort of focused on it in the last, you know, 20 to 15 years. Um, you know, the past owner was extraordinarily passionate about expansion it's just not easy, okay? It's not easy to launch a comedy festival. It's, uh, you know, when you start a comedy festival, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. Let's just say, hey, I want to I produce a comedy festival in Portland, Oregon, and you want to build it from scratch, okay? Well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to look at the amount of theaters you can fill, clubs. You're going to do a budget based on the ticketing, and then you're going to say, what other revenue streams can I have? Well, can I sell sponsorships? Yeah, but it's not easy. Can I do a media deal? Well, maybe if there's a really original idea. Can I sell? Uh, can I get grants from the government? Uh, probably not in the states. And before you know it, uh, there's a pretty tough PNL. It's not right away. It's you're going to look at that and go, "Why would you bother?" Yeah, it's a bad business. So what you've got to be is you've got to be creative. You've got to create like what the team did in Toronto a pass-based system that figured out the economics from day one. Sure, we needed some grants and some sponsorships, 
But the idea was so original that, um, and the way that the team designed it was they figured out what they could sell. They felt how many passes they think they could sell if the idea was good. And then they made the event for that amount of money. Because often we run off, even our first time in Toronto where we failed, we had a couple of good years and then we, we sort of blew our brains out. Oh, was it? Uh, the first time we just did just for last Toronto. Okay. okay? Um, is that we sort of built it and then tried to figure out how to pay for it. Okay. So okay. this time was re-engineered and it was smaller and it was, it was built to spec. It was a comedy fans festival. If you didn't know Todd Barry or, you know, at that time, John Mulaney, who was not a superstar, but phenomenal comic. If you didn't know who they were, you're not a client of ours. Okay. So we said, why do we, we can't afford massive marketing. We can't buy the Toronto star. So let's just program an event for the fans that are, that they're waiting for this type of event to appear because they're going to buy a pass. So we looked at how many passes we could sell and we built, and that's what we spent. And before you know it, we had this very, very targeted festival that became very, and still is very successful. I think you'll see us broadening it, but we will never lose the 42 piece and never lose the sort of indie piece that we've established well. We might go broader, but not at, not taking away from what we, that not taking away from the fans that built our festival. So back to, you know, it ain't easy to, to build a festival that makes financial sense. Um, so most of the time, a lot of things have to fall into place for that to work. We're successful, knocking on wood here, in Sydney, Australia. Yeah. Why? We have the best promoter in the country as a partner. Okay. We're at the Sydney Opera House. Everyone wants to perform there at least once. We have, a, we have the longest running TV series in Australia as the backbone of our event. Um, the gags? No, we have, us, we have Just for Last Australia. It's the longest running stand-up series in Australia. Really? Yeah. It's been going now. I think we're going into our eighth or ninth season. Um, we just got a new commitment for, for, uh, uh, for this year. We're, gonna sh we're doing the festival in December. And, uh, you know, we've had a bit of sponsorship, at times a little bit of government. So we found other sources of revenue, but, um, but, but all those field, uh, pieces fell into place and created a P&L that made some sense. Um, and, by the way, we're working on two or three uh, uh, festivals in different parts of the world that are looking really interesting. Um, are any of those parts New York? <laughs> I, I've I, always been so surprised that there's no, I'm biased a bit, but I've always been so surprised that there's no New York version of the festival. Our festival or a y festival? Your festival. Yeah. There's no, a New York you know Comedy what? Festival. The, the New York Comedy yeah. Festival does their does a very nice job. We're not in the business to walking in and competing. In oh, is that the, why? Because they already have one. Okay. Well, they're also our friends. Yeah. And two, you know, they're, Caroline's and uh, is a part of comedy, you know, history in New York. Uh, the city's hard. Because, you know, very hard to get attention. One of the prerequisites for success is either a focus on your audience, like what we do in Toronto, because the first time we were too broad, we didn't get attention because we tried to serve everyone, is we only, you either service a very clear-cut audience or you go to a city that you can take over. Okay. okay. You can take Montreal over. You can't take over New York City. So you would just be, look, you, you would just be something going on that comedy fans in New York would be interested in and maybe some tourists, but you're going to compete with Broadway, the Knicks, the Nets, the Rangers, the Yankees, 
the Mets. Even the Devils. People are going to go across <laughs> yeah, yeah. the pond. Um, you know, so uh, I think it's too difficult. Uh, but if the perfect opportunity fell in our lap, sure. But we're very selective. So it's not just can I make money. I mean, obviously, we have to make enough money to make it worthwhile for right. everyone. Um, but it's also what, is it, what does it mean to the brand? You know, is this, is this a part of the world we want to focus? Is this a part of the world where the local comedy scene will be a great complement? You know, uh, when we're in Sydney, Australia, we're a platform for all the artists in Australia and New Zealand. It's and there's phenomenal comics. There's a Melbourne festival that's superb. We do a different thing. You know, largely what Sydney does, it brings stars from England and America for the first time to our festival. So it's where we put up Burr, you know, Sarah Silverman, you, know, you name it, all came through this event. Um, so there's a very exclusive piece. We're only five days. We're not three weeks like Melbourne. So we're sort of like a premium star driven festival. And the things we do with the Australians is we give them TV exposure, uh, across the country and we offer the Australians a chance to host our shows, help their careers grow. Yeah. And uh, you know what? Also it's a, it's a give and take because, you know, uh, Dave Hughes, um, fantastic comic and a great friend of the festival is a massive star in Australia. He hosts the gala. You know, I'm sure he could make more money for that night doing something else. Uh, but he also wants to come to Montreal and be treated with respect in Montreal. So we make sure we reciprocate, you know, and he's a nice addition to our festival. So it's no big give. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's understanding what those Australian acts want in our other festivals, because, you know, once you get in the family and you want to, seek out other opportunities and you're extremely helpful to us establish ourselves in Australia, we're going to reciprocate and invite you to our other events. Especially if you're great for, you know, comedy fans of Montreal want to see you because there's so many phenomenal Australian acts. And phenomenal comedy fans here. Nerds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, look, Bruce, I want to keep you for 10 hours. However, I made a promise to have you out in time for tennis. Yes. So I'm not going to keep you, but it was a privilege. I'm very happy to have you here. I want you to come back some other time. Maybe after the festival, we discuss how it went. Sure. I'd love Good it. luck this summer. Uh, I think everything's going to go fine. I think it's going to be fun so too. with these remote endeavors. And again, thank you for, for this well, conversation. Listen, thank you. And uh, and I, I can't be more impressed with this setup. And not only that, I got Gentili coffee. <laughs> yeah. Even if I started with half a cup of coffee. Um, got one and I half. got some little pizzas. Uh, <laughs> this spot looks just awesome. This is first class. Uh, you even met me and gave me partial valet services you see that yeah nobody else does that no podcast no, does no, that. not at all so i thanks and uh you know i appreciate it very much thank you bruce welcome everybody to the thoughts of my head all my confessions are the latest trend i'll put some on my feet for you all Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.